0: Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about media and the people who make it. Today we've got a special podcast about climate change. Mark Hertzgaard is the environment correspondent of The Nation magazine and the author of seven books, including Hot Through the Next 50 Years on Earth, Earth Odyssey, Around the World in Search of Our Environmental Future, and On Bended Knee, the press and the Reagan presidency. Mark recently joined former podcast guest Kyle Pope, The Columbia Journalism Review and announcing the launch of Covering Climate Now, which is aimed at breaking the climate silence prevalent in much of the news media. The reason we have Mark on the podcast this week is because next week, September 16th through 23rd, a number of media organizations will be participating in a week long increase of coverage of climate change as part of the Covering Climate Now initiative. We talk to Mark a bit about that, as well as why media outlets have been dragging their feet and covering this really important issue, which Mark describes as the story of the future and actually the present, I guess. So enjoy our conversation. So first of all, you know, one of the things I like to do when I get a journalist on here is ask them a little bit about their journalist journey. How did you get interested in journalism?
1: I actually grew up in it, although at the time I had no plans to be a journalist, but my father was one of the old school TV news anchors before TV news went towards uh, Happy Talk, the sort of the the cheery little family uh, vibe that you see today on most newscasts. My dad was at the uh, NBC affiliate station in Baltimore. He was mm. known as uh, the Walter Cronkite of Baltimore, and I watched his newscast every night, 7 p.m., like my brothers and sisters did. So I kind of grew up that way, although I never expected that I would be a journalist myself. It wasn't something I thought about. And actually, I began as a book writer more than a, a journalist, but I quickly began to do both, and I've done it ever since.
0: So what got you interested in environmental journalism in particular?
1: Well, I've been lucky in my career to do all kinds of journalism. You know, I did a an investigative book on the media, as you mentioned, during the Reagan years, and I've done a book on music, the music of the Beatles. So I've written about a lot of things, which has been very lucky. But the environment is a theme that I keep coming back to. And I think it's because at a fairly young age, I realized that if you don't get that issue right, none of the other issues are going to matter. If we don't have a livable planet with drinkable water and breathable air, and a healthy soil, it doesn't matter what we do about health care or, you know, incarceration policies, because there's not going to be a society to sustain it. And in addition, I grew up on a farm in Maryland and, you know, we raised animals and crops. And I think that that gives you a certain connection to the natural world that has stayed with me my whole life.
0: When we talk about environments and environmental reporting these days, we're really kind of talking about climate, climate change. You know, how well do you think uh, the media has been covering the climate, you know, in the last 10 years or so?
1: The reason we started this new project with Nation Magazine and the Columbia Journalism Review called Covering Climate Now is precisely because the United States news media in particular has fallen woefully short of its professional responsibilities in covering the climate story. And I say that about the U.S. media very, very intentionally. I've been fortunate in my career to spend a lot of my time overseas. I lived and traveled most of the 1990s overseas. I read the European press and other press. And ever since the 1990s, the U.S. press has been about 10 years behind the coverage in Europe. And This is a broader problem in the United States. It's not just the press. It's the fact that the press tends to reflect the discussion going on within political elites. And in the United States, unlike in Europe, political elites have essentially tried to ignore or outright deny the science around climate change. And this is very evident for many years. I mean, you can go all the way back to the 1990s when you had Al Gore serving as vice president. Right under Bill Clinton. So you would think that there would be serious coverage in the U.S. No. If you looked at the media coverage, it was all a question of whether climate change was real or was this scientist a bunch of, of hooey. Whereas in Europe, you could look across the continent, including at that point, most of those countries were governed by right-of-center political parties in France, in Germany, in Britain. None of them questioned the science about climate change. The argument was, what do we do about it? Who pays for it? Which route do we take? Do we go nuclear? Do we go solar? But there was none of this nonsense about, oh, it's not real. Or let's put up one genuine scientist against a quack funded by the oil industry and pretend that that's balanced. That was that was how the U.S. media handled it in the 1990s. And still largely through until very recently. Now, I want to add that in the past two to three years, parts of the elite press in the U.S. have done much better. The Washington Post in particular, the New York Times have done much better. They're now covering climate change. However, the big voices in the media, and I'm talking here about the broadcast networks, have still basically remained silent. So, climate silence prevails still in the United States. And, you know, remember, it is still, despite social media and all of that, television is where most Americans get most of their news. So, the fact that TV in America has been largely silent about climate change is a big problem.
0: A step in the positive direction would be to somehow separate science from in US media coverage from. From the actual politics of this issue? Or, you know, actually, I guess what you're saying, how it's being covered in your, you know, even diverse political points of view recognize the science behind it. What forces do you see have sort of skewed this view in the United States?
1: The main error, journalistic error, that the US media has made on the climate story for years now is to confuse a science story with a politics story. There should be no disagreement about the science. Obviously, science has never settled, but you should be reporting on the science. And the science is terrifyingly clear that we're facing an emergency situation. We have now roughly 11 years to slash the emissions of heat trapping gases in half. This will require what the scientists of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, called unprecedented changes in human history. So we should be clear about that. That is a scientific fact. The problem has been that so many in the media have swallowed, frankly, the propaganda message of the oil industry into saying, no, that's a political judgment. You're making a political judgment. If you use words like emergency or crisis, or even take climate science seriously, that's a political judgment. And I would say, and we're saying it covering climate now, that that is a fundamental error. As journalists, we have got to distinguish between a scientific fact and a political opinion. And we have been treating climate change for way too long as if it's a political opinion. And that's true even now, With this problem of climate silence, because I think the reason that so many news outlets are silent about climate is because they think that it's political for them to talk about it. And that is simply wrong. That is factually wrong. It'd be like saying that we can't talk about gravity because some people don't like it. Or look at how we just covered very recently the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, right? None of us put these quack scientists, so-called scientists, on the air during the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, and the people who are saying, oh, it's all a hoax. Why don't we do that? Because we know that's not true. And as journalists, we're supposed to pass on truth to our audiences. So that's really what we need to be uh, doing, I think. And unfortunately, uh, too many of us are still buying the uh, propaganda of the oil industry. And of course, that propaganda is powerfully reinforced, By the fact that um, so much of the Republican Party in the Congress and in the White House are uh, drinking from the same Kool Aid.
0: Yeah. And and from the journalist perspective, this idea that, you know, once something becomes political, there's this instinct that we have to balance it. So if we look at science, as that there's no right or wrong, it's science, you know, it's going to, you know, it's got the facts behind it and, you know, it should be addressed on those terms. Whereas if it's it's political, it's like, well, I got to bring somebody in here with an opposing point of view, uh, which, of course, is going to be somebody who's who challenges the actual facts behind something. So how did this project, you know, uh, covering climate now come about? What is your goal with it?
1: Yeah, I just want to add there. It's fine. There are obviously political implications of the science. And so in that regard, when you're talking about, for example, the Green New Deal or Bernie Sanders just has his version of the Green New Deal that just came out. There, it's fair enough to have a range of views represented. Do you think Senator Sanders' program is a a good one? Is it well thought through? How will he pay for it, et cetera, et cetera? I don't want to be misunderstood here. There's obviously political implications, but we have to be clear on the science. And now getting to your question, where did covering climate now come from? It was from the science. Last October, you'll remember, October 2018, came really one of the landmark reports in the history of climate science from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It was called the 1.5C report, meaning 1.5 degrees Celsius, what would happen to the Earth if we hit 1.5, and how do we do that? Because, of course, previously the guideline had been 2 degrees C, and that's beginning to look increasingly dangerous. So this report comes out. In October, and it says famously, we have 12 years in which to get the emissions cut in half. We have to be completely carbon neutral by 2050, which is only 30 years away. So, of course, I I read that report. And then I saw the next day in the Washington Post, their excellent media columnist, Margaret Sullivan, uh, wrote a piece. And it was clear that she was not herself that familiar with climate but she is a news person and she got the implication and she said look this is a story that the media should be putting on the front page every day we should be covering it like there is no other story because if we don't get this story right nothing else is going to matter and i read that and i thought yeah she's exactly right so how do we do that and i had also seen in in the ipcc reports where these scientists were saying that if we're going to hit this 12-year target we need radical transformation in the energy sector, in the construction sector, in the transportation sector. And my contribution I think was to say, yes, but we also need radical transformation in the media sector. Because if we don't get that, none of those other sectors are gonna change because there will not be the public awareness and frankly the public pressure on government and corporations to take these very radical actions I mean, they can be they're gonna be very good for us. We create a lot of jobs by kicking fossil fuels behind us. But let's not kid ourselves, it's a major transformation. So I thought, okay, we need to transform the media sector. And so I called up my editor and publisher at the nation, Katrina Vandenhovel, and she immediately agreed. And then I called Kyle Pope, my colleague at the Columbia Journalism Review, who I'd worked with in the past on a couple of special projects. And he agreed as well that we should try and do something. He said, let's have a conference here at Columbia. And so we planned that. And we just wanted to start the conversation, basically, within the journalistic profession. And that conversation has now just, there is a lot of appetite for it. And it has, this project has taken off like a rocket. We now have over 160 news outlets from across the United States and around the world who have joined in this project, they have a combined audience of literally hundreds of millions of people. And what we have all pledged to do is to do one week of strong climate coverage in September in the days leading up to the UN Climate Summit in New York on September 23rd, where will be a very decisive moment in uh, humanity's efforts to deal with the climate crisis. So that's what we're doing, and it's very gratifying, I must say. The kinds of outlets we've got: TV, we've got radio, we've got obviously everybody's online. We've got print, we've got big, we've got gigantic, we've got tiny little websites in Turkey and Togo and Rhode Island and Nevada. The Times of India is signing on, which is a—it's uh, wonderful, but it's quite hilarious when you talk to them about how big is their audience, and they say. Well, we have about one billion page views on the Times of India. So <laughs> that's that's put our numbers up quite a bit. But we also have you know, Bloomberg News and CBS News and then a lot a lot of the usual suspects like The Guardian. We're very, very pleased to have The Guardian newspaper as our lead media partner on this because I think The Guardian has, with its exemplary reporting, and its consistent front-page play of the climate story, it has set the gold standard for climate coverage. So we're very pleased to have The Guardian with us.
0: These other news outlets that came to you uh, to join in this effort, you know, what was their sort of attitude? Were they also affected the same way you were by the, the report that came out? Is that what sort of inspired them, or were they doing climate change coverage up to date and they saw this as an opportunity to expand that?
1: there's no one story. Some of them came to us. In many cases, we've recruited them. I just sent out kind of cold call emails to places like the Times of India. We've got the Asahi Shimbun, which is the biggest paper in Japan. They came to us, as I recall. CBS News, we reached out to. And in many cases, these are outlets that are already doing good coverage. In other cases, like CBS, and they're, to their credit, they're very honest about this. They say, look, we know that climate change is the story of the future, and we know we haven't been doing justice to it. Can you help us? And so we're very pleased to be working with them and putting them together with outlets like The Guardian to say, look, this is this is how you can do a good, strong coverage. So there's a lot of different stories on it. I'd hesitate to say there's only one, but It does get to kind of one of our goals with this project. I had a hunch going in that there is a critical mass within journalism, news outlets and journalists who are already doing or who want to be doing lots of climate coverage, people who get it, that this is the defining story of our time. And what we wanted to do with this project is to highlight that critical mass that exists within the news business And by highlighting it, grow it so that you can show all these other news outlets, hey, here's CBS News. Here's The Guardian. Here's The Nation. Here's The Times of India. Here's the big papers and the big TV networks in Europe and Asia. They're doing it. You can do it, too. Come and join us. You know, we are very clear. We are not activists. We are journalists. And that's a very distinct social role. So we're not trying to be activists. There is no editorial line that any news outlet has to take on this project. Every outlet has absolute editorial independence. But we are, although we're not campaigning, we are making a very clear statement. We think that everybody in the media should be doing exactly this, should be covering this story like it's the biggest story of our time, because it is.
0: So how do um, newsrooms, just as an initial step, as they write these stories and they go to their audiences, convey to them, you know, as you alluded to before, there are political ramifications for, you know, climate change coverage and the decisions that come out of it, you know, where to put resources, how to, you know, prioritize things, how can they best go, you know, present their content and go to their audience and say, this is not a political issue. This This is something that affects all of us.
1: I'm going to confine my answer to that question to the U.S. context, because it's sure. really only in the U.S. that that is an issue. Again, it's if you go to Europe or to Asia, the coverage there, it's clear that the science is what it is, and you just cover the story. I think the most important thing to do is to cover the story, to break the silence, to start writing about it. And when you start writing about it, play it big. Now, for example, we're recording this on Friday, the 23rd of August. If you look at the front pages of the Guardian newspaper or the Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is a lead paper in Germany, both of them today are playing as they're at the top of their web page. The Amazon is burning the lungs of the planet. 20 percent of the oxygen on the planet is in the Amazon and it is on fire because of the new far right government there is literally encouraging industrial agricultural interests to burn down the forest so that they can grow more soy and cattle. That's the top of the story, top of the web page on both The Guardian and the Süddeutsche Zeitung and probably many other outlets around the world that I haven't checked yet. Compare that to the best of the U.S. media on climate, which is The Washington Post and The New York Times. You will look in vain on their web pages, at least at this hour, for any mention of the Amazon. That's not that they haven't covered it. They were there, they had stories on it yesterday. I'm not saying they're ignoring it, but so much in journalism and so much of what we convey to our audiences is how we emphasize a given story. It's not enough just to cover it, but do you make it the lead story? Do you play it big? Do you have? two or three different angles on that story? Or do you just run one bit of wire copy at the bottom of the page? So that's the first thing that I would say that U.S. outlets need to do is to cover the story and cover it big. The
0: project is pushing forward, you know, increased coverage in the week of September 16th through the 23rd, leading up to the summit on the 23rd in New York City. You know, after that week, after that summit, what do you hope that this accomplishes? What changes do you hope will come out of it?
1: Well, I'm enough of a newsman to say I think we have to wait and see what events. I hate how so much of journalism has become this question of what do you think is going to happen? Which candidate is going to win? That's not our job. Our job okay. is to report what is happening, not to prognosticate. Okay. And we have ideas for what we want to do after September, but... A lot of it will depend on how does that week in September go? What lessons do we learn? We are very eager to uh, create and build relationships among those 160 plus news outlets that we hope will continue after September. One of the things that we're doing during that September week is to share content with one another for free. Now, I'm going to be clear about what I mean by sharing content we are sharing it with our fellow news outlets. We're not asking any news outlet to lower their paywalls to the uh, paying public. We feel very strongly at covering climate now and at the Nation Magazine and at the Columbia Journalism Review that professional journalism is a valuable product and it should be paid for. You shouldn't be expecting to get journalism free because when you do, that's the kind of journalism that you're gonna get. But we are during this week, sharing content for free, climate content, Precisely because we understand that some of our participating news outlets either A, don't have a lot of experience with climate coverage, or B, are very small newsrooms, and they just don't have the capacity to do more. So they will have the advantage of being able to publish stories by The Guardian, by The Nation, you know, high-quality professional stuff that they will get for free for that week. We hope, thereby— To, as I say, to build relationships and to build trust that will perhaps lead these outlets going forward to create their own commercial arrangements where you basically maybe you buy syndication rights to the Guardian climate coverage, perhaps for a discounted rate or something like that. So we'll see. We're going to see what kind of lessons we learn and what kind of impact we have in September, and then we'll move forward from there.
0: Our podcast, our audience is primarily, you know, journalists, young journalists, educators. What would you say to them? Maybe they haven't written about climate, they haven't written about climate change, but maybe they want to. What would you say to them and to encourage them to, you know, get on this story?
1: I would say what uh, Kyle Pope and I said in the background article that we published for the um, conference we held at Columbia in April to launch this whole project And you can find that online. It's at The Nation and it's at uh, CJR. And The Guardian also published part of it. I think it was called The Media Are Complacent While the World Burns. We give a bunch of very specific suggestions in there about how the media can do better. But we also said that it may sound kind of counterintuitive, but this is a great time to be on the climate beat. It is the biggest story in the world by far. It encapsulates all the other stories. It is the story in which every other story will take place. So even if you're a sports writer or you're a food writer or whatever beat you are on, there is a climate angle to it. For example, with sports, here it is, August, a lot of the uh, you know youth and high school sports teams, especially down in the South, They've had to reschedule practices because it's too darn hot for those kids to be out there. So that's a story. And so I guess I would say that you're coming to this story at a great time. Obviously, it's not a great time to get paid in journalism. And so one of the big things I think facing our profession is that we have got to figure out a business model that works. And that means that people should be talking to their friends and neighbors and parents and so forth about pay for journalism. Even if it's just a little bit, you know, The Guardian right now is actually making money on its environmental and climate coverage. And why is that? It's because readers are reading those stories and saying, yes, I want to support this kind of journalism. And they're just paying whatever, you know, maybe $20 a year or something like that. So I would try to get on this story, get some especially local expertise at it and just start doing it. I think that it will certainly be a growth field, unfortunately, that this story is going to take more and more journalistic resources going forward.
0: Mark, this has been fascinating. Thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about this. Good luck with uh, Covering Climate Now. I'm really excited to read the stories that, that come out of it. And I hope everything goes well for you and for this project.
1: I sure appreciate it, Michael. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. We also just posted the results of our online survey about journalism resources. Check out what tools some of our readers are using to make good journalism. Everyone who took our survey received a free It's All Journalism mug. If you'd like to score a mug of your own, take one of our surveys. Go to It'sAllJournalism.com to learn more. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emil Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.